0: Ni. Alewa. Kaya, I'm Phil Wally Stack and welcome to Ni Nalak Wangi. Listen, us talking. The story you're about to hear is not that uncommon for some of our elders. Assimilation. Uncle Walter Eats is the child of a stolen generation mother and a fair-skinned father, both disconnected from their Aboriginal culture and families. It meant Uncle Walter spent his early years not really knowing about his heritage. As he says, not white, not black, not wanted. But as we're about to hear, all that changed when he met his wife, Lisha. A strong Noongar Yogo helped Uncle Walter put together the missing pieces of his past. Welcome to the show, Uncle Walter. Kaya Pop. Thank you for inviting us to your home to this interview. It's your birthday too. Eighty-five. Eighty-five. Not yet. Well, you only turn 85 once, didn't Yeah, it took me a long time to get here. Yeah, 84 years. Yeah. <laughs> you've had quite a journey in your lifetime, which we'll hear about a little bit later on, but um, we want to start off by acknowledging the seven books that you've written. Do you want to tell us about the seven books?
1: Well, we started off with uh, my wife's leisures book and... Uh, She was doing it for 15 years and uh, I wanted to start on mine but I I would not because she's my elder.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, so I waited till she completed her book and uh, because every time she'd start talking about family, the hurt was there and everything Mm -hmm. and we'd stop for a year or something. And uh, then I wrote mine. And uh, because I thought it's a story that needed to be told because I grew up uh, with a lot, of, a big chip on my shoulder, a lot of hate there, uh, mm-hmm. that much hate that I, I think I travelled Australia 14 times before uh, before I took a breath because so I grew up in a white environment. I mm. uh, wasn't wanted there but uh, I didn't know how to break back into my Aboriginal groups. Mm. So uh, I thought it's a story that needed to be told because it talks about uh, mum being taken away and uh, the effect it had on me as a a sibling uh, growing up. But I grew up there with a lot of hate in me uh, when I started this book too. Mm. I still had a lot and uh, I got halfway through it and I was having a study with a Christian fella, and I pulled up. And I said, this is no good. Here I am studying the Bible with this Christian fella, and I'm writing a book with a lot of hate in it, you know. Yeah. So I said I'll have to choose now which path I'm going to go. Mm. Anyway, I left it for about six months and I thought, no, it's a story that's got to be told, uh, not only for myself but for other ones that's been taken away from their folk at a young age and uh, it might help them along the way. And also to show how a a mother or a father being placed in an institution like that, the effect it has on all the children growing up because Mm. uh, even though they don't talk about what happened to them there, you can see the pain in their eyes and the children... Mm. It doesn't stop at your mother or father's door. it carries on with your child the children too yeah and you so carried you carried a lot of that I carried it up uh, because your mother was stolen generation as well. yeah, she uh, was taken away from her people in Halls Craig from the Jaru people yeah. and born at Palm Springs and uh, she was taken away at about three year old and placed in Beagle Bay mission yeah. and she never got out there till she married Dad. And, and where was Dad from? Dad from Busselton. From Busselton, mm. yeah. So he was a miner, a yard builder, stockman, horse breaker, drover, man, station manager. So mother from Kimberley, dad from Noongar. Busselton, yes. How did they, that's sort top and bottom of WA. How did they meet? Dad uh, happened to be on Mount Anderson Station right. out between Broome and Derby and uh, Dad uh, was sort of driven there into, from Mount Anderson. Then he st- ended up uh, managing it and he'd take a trip into Broome and he spotted Mum and, mm. and that's very, uh, yeah. yeah. Five of us siblings were born in Derby. Right. Our Dad worked for the Harbour and Lights and, uh, and then the authorities found out uh, Mum had a child prior to the marriage and the authorities found out and they started an investigation. And that's what it was. How come this woman, growing up, had this here illegitimate child to a white man and the authorities didn't know about it? The welfare had no idea about it. Mm. And A.O. Neville and that, they called a quick investigation into it. And when that started, uh, mum and dad packed up. And then they couldn't put enough dust between Beagle Bay Mission and mm. uh, the authorities in Western Australia until they ended up in Chardist Queensland. Mm. And that's where I was reared up and went to school.
0: Right.
1: I was trying to find that connection
0: with Queensland.
1: <laughs> yeah. So that's why it was the furthest part you can get away from.
0: Well, <laughs> from I was just living.
1: turning 15 when I found out that I, there was more to our family than only eight. Mm. And it was the first time I'd met any relation at all. Yeah. And uh, it was Dad's side and they were white and Dad went to his grave thinking he was white but I find out later on that his, uh, gra- uh, my great-grandmother was Aboriginal from Kangaroo Island. Right. And uh, anyway, I f- when uh, Dad's relations looked at Mum and me, we carry our colour on the outside and up I could see the nose tilt upwards. And I thought to myself, well, if that's relations, I, I don't want nothing to do with it. Mm. And why, that, why do you think that was? Well, it just uh, uh, just a racist uh, act against me, I thought, and mum. Yeah. And uh, That was your own mob. Yeah, yeah well, dad's side. Yeah. And that's why it, even today I still call it dad's mob. Yeah. You know, even though there's ones I'm very close to, it's always been Dad's mom. Mm. But that the chip I was carrying on my shoulder then as a child, it grew bigger. Mm. And uh, when we came back to Caliberium and that, uh, I'd done a painting apprenticeship for five years with uh, Bill Hart and uh, his wife had five miscarriages uh, so he had to move to the city where the specialists are. And he said, um, come with me. And I said, no, Bill, I took one look at those high buildings in Perth and mm. no way in the world you'll get me up on them. <laughs> I said, I like my feet on the ground. Yeah. And he, Bill Hart turned around to me and said, if you'd have known how many jobs I've turned down over the last five years because you Aboriginal, he said, you'd only jump at the chance to come. Yeah. I said, Bill... If you'd have told me after you turned the first job down, I wouldn't have been with you next day. Mm. And with that, I, I, I grew up building. I had a building high, uh, height for Caliberon and mm. I promised if ever I go through Caliberon, it's on fire. And I had a cup of water in my hand, I wouldn't even tip it out on a spark.
0: Yeah.
1: And, uh, mm. of course, I've come to appreciate Caliberan since, but yep. it took me... 40 years. So, just to go back a little pop to your schooling in Queensland, what was that like? The schooling I, I started when I was late because mum and dad and I'm heading over from Derby and that too. So, it was nine, I was nine by the time I got to school. And uh, because I was too young to go into the boys' school, and that was only divided by a tin fence, the mm. boys' school and girls' school. So they put me in the primary thing in the girls' school and a couple other little young fellows. And we lasted a little while. And uh, then they moved to boys' school. And I had to fight my way to school. I had to fight my way at Smoko time. Mm. I had to fight going home. And that kept going and going and going. Then, mind you, I started at nine and I kept going right up until uh, I got to about 13. That's when you left school? No. Well, prior to that uh, I got sick of fighting and I I said, you know, I'm getting nowhere. Mm. I wasn't learning anything. I was playing the wag a little bit here and there and there. Then I started to say, well, that's it. Played the WAG a week I thought, gee, that's great. I went two weeks but then I went three months and then uh, after three months the police came up and said to mum and dad, if I'm not back at school, uh, this is on a Friday, they said if I'm not back at school by the following Friday, they, they, they might take me or my parents. All right. So that's all right. I said, yeah, mum, yeah, dad, I'll do that. So I played the WAG right from Monday till Thursday and I went back on the Friday. Oh, Friday. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, they said Friday, didn't they? <laughs> well, that's right. So yeah. so after, after school,
0: you know, you, you did a lot of fighting during school. Yeah, and you the ended, big boys got bigger too. Well, I, I thought there were some big boys in the boxing tent too. Yeah. I
1: heard you went, went in the boxing tent after school. Yeah, well, I travelled with Larry Della Hunty Yeah. But he was boxing and rodeos but, and all that. Yeah. Uh, in Jim Hansen days and all that, uh, Alfie Clay. Uh, also with Tex Morton, I was uh, I was with him. Yeah. Uh, doing a little bit of boxing, but mainly the if no rodeo ride, no buck jump riders would turn up for the night, I'd have to do the riding. You done it all? Oh well, yeah. That was <laughs> in Slim uh, Larry Dallandi's yeah troop too. So he had a hypnotist. He had boxing and. And buck jump riding, and uh, you never filled in for the hypnotist? No, (laughs) I. But uh, but yeah, I I enjoyed that too because um, I'd rather a horse bucking in a round yard than a (laughs) open flat, even though I've done a lot of that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
0: and you're a station worker as well. Yeah, uh, you must have some yarns about working out
1: in the station. Yeah, one of the, uh, going back to one one of my most distressing episodes was Lawn Hill Station up in the Gulf in Queensland and uh, just out of Doomagie and uh, they were real, a little bit racial minded. Anyway, uh, I went over to Doomagie and got a tooth pulled out it took uh, the um, dentist, the nurse and the station manager to pull my wisdom tooth out. It was that tough. But I got to know a lot of those Doomagie people because a lot of them were working as stockmen in Lawn Hill Station. Mm. And uh, th- th- they had a lovely, uh, not, I'm not too sure where they should put this one on. <laughs> they had a lovely daughter. <laughs> So I was fond of the parents. <laughs> anyway, one morning there I woke up and they said, you heard the news? And I said, no. And they said uh, two people died last night here and uh, there was one woman, they had to fly down to the Currie, Cloncurrie. And uh, they went down to get uh, bacon powder from the shop in the station and Arsenic and bacon powder looks the same. So he gave them arsenic and two of them died more or less a couple of hours. Mm. And I heard the screaming and screaming of that woman and I'll never get over it and Mm. it was the girl's mother Mm. and her father and her brother. And uh, Mm. so... uh, Looks like it still sticks with you today. Yeah, and also too there was a head stockman there that uh, uh, was the name of Sam Hobbs and he, he used to rule right over them Dummidgee fellas and all the stockmen there. Mm. And uh, this, he got on a horse one day and, oh, it threw him as high as you can <laughs> and, he, and so that's all right. We were out in the stock camp and he went to um, visit the station and I, I told the Doomadgee fellas to saddle that horse up for me, will you? So I sad, they saddled him up and I rode him out anyway. I mean, he, he could buck but nothing much. Mm. But he heard about it and I might as well roll my swag because uh, he was one of those, that he doesn't like to be put down. He put it, put down by an Aboriginal. Mm. And me riding that horse that threw him he didn't like that. He yeah, it right in. That was one of my saddest episodes, and it's a place where I uh, I was riding a buck jumper all day, mustering, and uh, he bucked, and I was on a, uh, flats where there was tufts of grass that high, and he bucked once too often, and tripped on that tuft of grass, come down and landed right on top of me, and couldn't get up. And I'm, the only thing that saved my life was. I was laying between two tufts of grass mm. and with this horse on top of me and they had to ride, run over and get, pull him off. But my stomach was that far out for about three months. Wow. Flying doctors were available, N- nothing doing with me because I was Aboriginal. They would not fly me to the Isa, Mount mm. Isa and... Uh, You'd have come across a lot of discrimination and racism oh, yeah. while out there. Well, look, in, in those days when uh, I'd catch a mail truck, it might take two days to get there, might have two bob in my pocket. I'd take one look at the head stockman or the owner or the manager or the boss there. Mm. If I didn't like his looks, my saddle and swag would stay on the mail truck. I'd no. just keep going. Or if I stepped off with him. And uh, I didn't like their attitude. Bang! I'd throw it back on, and I'm gone again. Yeah. Even with just two bob in my pocket. It must have been done it often. Must have been pretty difficult in times because you had your
0: identity of an Aboriginal person. Where you sort of wasn't identifying as an Aboriginal person. That's and right. Then the the non-Aboriginal people not identifying
1: with you, and did you feel like you were stuck in between two worlds? Well, I was somewhere between and even this book here is called Somewhere Between mm. and that's the way I've been all my life. Even when you look at the, the picture of mum, dad and me, dad white in the middle of mum and me and uh, that's the way we sort of grew up with that hate in me because I wasn't wanted by the white side mm. and I didn't know how to break into the Aboriginal side and I was just somewhere between. In limbo, more or less. Yeah. And I think that created a lot of the chip on my shoulder, yeah.
0: Mm. I know, um, you know, just to to go down another road for a sec, we, we tried for for the last couple of months, I suppose, to have a yarn with yourself and with Nana and and sadly we, we, we lost Nana and it was a beautiful send-off, you know, that we had. But so happy for you to, you know, still want to, have a chat with us today. How did you both meet?
1: I see your smile straight out when I said that. <laughs> that. That's the question that's been asked by non aboriginal people for years. Yeah. And since Lee's had a book written Nancy said, read my book. <laughs> well, you're going to More tell or less me. Well, unless that then. sort of <laughs> finished the conversation. Yeah. But, yes, uh, well, what happened was we both come off a disastrous marriage and I'll put it that way. Lee's had a disastrous marriage. I had one. And we were sort of, um, mm. I don't know, we're pretty aggro at the world and mm. uh, never get tied up again, you know. But then I was down Caliberian Street one, uh, and I see this group of people there and there's one outstanding in the middle. And I thought, gee, I'd like to meet and find out who she is. And... Uh, that's all right. I didn't see her for a few weeks, but her brother Mick, mm. he—I uh, didn't know him from Soap, but he come. We started talk one day, and he said, hey, "You got a couple of bob I could borrow," and I said, "Yeah." So it was his uh, my payday. Next payday, he paid me back, and I borrowed off him <laughs> again, <laughs> and this kept on going for twelve months. And then one day, I woke up in Calabaran, Massingham Street, where we live. Knock on the door, Mick was there. He said, Could you, look, he said, I'm stuck. Could you run me to Tamman, which is 15 miles up the road? Mm. I said, Right. He said, I got another one to pick up too. And it was this one I seen in the street. It was his sister. (laughs) Well, got her in the car then, took her to Tamman, never got out of the car since. Been
0: riding all the way, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, she, she's loved by so many people in the community. Oh, you yeah. You know, right across Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, you know. And, and she's going to leave an incredible legacy. But what do you think is the
1: legacy that she left behind? Well, I'd have to go back. I'd have to go back in life. Uh, we see a, a young girl... Uh, an outcast in her own country because of the laws and the policies of the government. Mm. Uh, in a, She's an outcast in her own country living on the outskirts of town. She rose from that right up and to the woman she was today, you know. Mm. And um, she had a lot of suffering on the way. She lost... Seven of her family members in seven months. We had one weekend, Friday. We went up and buried a brother, elder brother. We come back to Perth, Monday morning. This was uh, that was Friday. Monday morning, get a phone call from uh, that a mother had just passed away, mm. and I couldn't I couldn't bear to tell her by myself. I rang Denzel Humphreys, the pastor, to come down, and give me a hand because. Of all mornings Lisa slept in was that morning. Mm. So when, so he had time to get down, we told her. So we thought, well, we'll go up to Caliberon and tell her elder brother, Willie. So when we got to Caliberon, they said, wait in the waiting room and we've got to identify the body. Apparently Willie walked out of the hospital at night across the road and died in someone's yard. So there were three on the one weekend Wow. You know. and then there was a younger brother twenty seven uh he was uh, in woloo prison on just a little petty charge and uh mm. complained about a pain in the chest for five hours uh northern was only twenty kilometers away uh they wouldn't take him, and he died that night twenty seven years old and then there was mick uh, the one that introduced me to her. So there was about seven or something in, in seven months mm. and uh, she still rose above that. By that time Lisa was fighting for her land, her people and her identity and we went away for 12 months to Port Augusta, run a, managed a couple of hospitals, one in Adelaide, the... Offenders Aid and Rehabilitation Services one, then went, oh, well, before that, the Salvation Army one in Port Augusta. And why they picked us, I don't know, because I'm not Salvation Army. <laughs> but they asked if I'd do it for two weeks. I said yes. So that ended up four months later, <laughs> still going. And anyway, I, I went, I uh, applied for a job with the NAC in Canberra, National Aboriginal Conference, and uh, I was there until they started to split up. And we moved back to Port Augusta where Danny Colson, he was a member of the NAC, had his office mm-hmm. and I worked there for a while anyway, good while. And by that time, Lisa said, look, I've, I'm right now, I can face things, we go back to Perth. Yeah. So, um, so that
0: was sort of, that was that come at a great time for her,
1: I suppose, to heal. Yeah. Do you think? So we come back to Perth and she continued to fight. She went back to TAFE and all that and... Uh, yeah, mm. but uh, when you're talking about legacy, uh, I uh, it, it's her strength, uh, her fight for her people, her land, her language, her culture, mm. identity and to me it's, it wasn't only, she was a legend. Mm. She was mm. a legend in her own rights. Mm. And if not for her, I wouldn't be here today. Mm. Uh, I wouldn't have had a culture. I wouldn't have probably an identity. Mm. How do you think Nana would want to be remembered? Well, there's a fighter for a start. fighter, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, look, I don't know how to put it, but she's the most caring person and... Uh, No-one can say in 55 years that I've ever took a step in front of her.
0: Mm.
1: I've always been a step behind her because my love and respect for her was that strong that uh, I'd never break a protocol of her being the elder. Did you ever feel cheated that you didn't get that growing up? No, because it was through Lisa that I... uh, that I gained the only culture I know. Mm. Uh, Mum had lost her culture; they stripped her of that in putting her in the mission, you know, in Big yeah. Hill Bay. Uh And the only culture I ever had is Noongar culture, and that's through Lisa. Yeah. Mm. And uh, otherwise, I wouldn't have a culture. Yeah. And you, you, you,
0: you give her credit all the time for you know finding your identity. Um, how,
1: how did, how did she do that? Well, her saying to me was, when I used to go off the rails, was, look, one day you'll find your people, she said, because I've never, ever seen a small Aboriginal family yet.
0: <laughs> That's true.
1: So <laughs> that was fine. I'm related to three parts of the Kimberley, a, um, a big part of Queensland down the southwest, west, mm. then Adelaide, too. So, I got as many relatives as we have there. So the day—I
0: suppose the day or night—and it was through her that when it happened. Was it something that you always said to said to her that you want to find out who you are, or was she the one who encouraged you to find out who you
1: are? Lisa encouraged me. Right. To find out. Mm. And and uh, once. The first thing I had to do was accept my Aboriginality. How how did you feel? I know, like, sometimes and my
0: wife tells me to find out something like this. I I sort of feel like um, like it's none of your business. You know, that's my own thing.
1: How did you feel at that moment when she encouraged you to? No, I I never questioned her uh, um, when she encouraged me to find my... Uh, accept my uh, Aboriginality mm. uh, and to find my proper identity, uh, I, uh, n- I never resented at all. I encouraged it mm. because deep within me I was a loner and I was wanting something. Yeah. And uh, all there was was a gap. Yeah. And Lisa filled that gap. It was the only time I was able to do something constructive with my life.
0: mm. And when, you find
1: things start happening, eh? yeah, yeah, When Lisa brought all that too back to me,
0: mm.
1: the things that I had lost or never ever had, you know, identity and all that, yeah. uh, and once uh, she introduced me to all of it and encouraged me along the way, and once I responded positively, I was able to do something constructive with my life. Yeah. And, and we built on that, yeah. and you've been a powerhouse since... <laughs> well, this was a powerhouse I and mean, yeah. I was just supporter. Well, you got to push it along for her now.
0: <laughs> when Leonard Doolan come into your life, you got that sense of family then. Is it, am I right in saying that? Yeah. Because yeah. it seemed like your your childhood and family seemed very apart and, yeah. and distant, you know, and trying to stay away from them mob. And, yeah. And then
1: you come into the... The Garlit family and suddenly they're all together. And and that, uh, besides Lisa bringing me that far in, except my Aboriginality and culture, and it was her family and her attachment to her family Mm. and love and strength from her family and my acceptance was the main thing, my acceptance by her family that sort of... uh, uh, Yeah... Brought everything to fruition, really. And yes. it sounds like you had a, had a tough childhood. Did you have any fond memories of childhood? I, I, I had not much appreciation for anything, really.
0: Mm.
1: More or less, I loved my parents and me brothers and sisters, even though because of mum being taken away and when we got to Charters Towers in Queensland, all our siblings split their own ways and we never seen each other for 20 30 years you know mm. and uh i i grew up with that sort of love mum and dad to the point i i sort of put a distance between with with the what i've seen of dad's relations and all that uh i i put a blockage or a, a barrier between mm. me and getting close to anyone mm. the good part It was when I wrote the book after Lise got me identity and all that back that I realised how uh, wrong I'd done my parents, Mm. you know, by not uh, responding to the love. They were showing me, Yeah, you know.
0: I know a lot of people today, they still hold a grudge against their parents about stuff that happened. And I know personally for a fact I've done that as well. Um, Have you let go of that yet?
1: I have. Yeah, I've had. How did did you let go of that? Through through Lisa, through her family and especially through Lisa herself, Mm. you know. See, remember when we first come together, we'd come through a pretty rough relationship each. And uh, when I lost my first wife and... Because I was still with that chip on my shoulder, mm. that uh, my thoughts was, well, you know, what's the use of waking up tomorrow yeah. and uh, continuing on? Mm. And uh, it's pretty bad. But when you uh, turn eighty-five and you still got ten sh- shrapnel pieces of bullet in you, huh? you start to realise. Where's that? Because I nearly finished it. Wow. Yeah, because of the chip on the shoulder the hate that i had for the world and the system mm. and uh, the the busted up marriage and uh yeah, to me there was nothing left you know wow but uh well, I we're glad that. you're still here mm? we're so we're happy you're still here well it was through that and lisa bringing me through all that she brought me through that yeah right through today take us take us back to how she did it how did she do it what was the process to find your your identity well lisa was looking for the see like i said we both had it pretty rough mm. but lisa was probably searching for the same thing that i was searching for without realizing it i, I was searching for someone that cared for me as i was you know mm scars and all, and uh, she was doing the same things. But it was only in latter years that uh, when we come to say, hey, look, let's leave our hurdles back there and let's sit down together
0: mm. and
1: work all our hurdles out that's facing us today that we're able to drop all them things off. Yeah. And get on, yeah. But. But, but, see, after meeting all the family who accepted me and I could see the love between all them fellas, you know, gave me a different uh, perspective in life mm. sort of thing, yeah. Mm. And uh, because I'd never, I wasn't used to it. Uh, prior to all that, I'd go to somewhere, to a meeting or something, and I'd see mothers and fathers and children together and I'd envy them. I'd really envy them. You know, why couldn't it be like that for me? Uh, See, because mum never opened up on what happened to her. Everything Mm. I found out was after mum had passed away. And uh, growing up I sort of envied parents with their children Mm -hmm. or I envied the children with their parents sort of thing, you know, because I never had that close relationship there like that. Yeah, brought me to, like I said, uh, accept my Aboriginality, identity, and all that. We started finding out where Mum come from and all that, and then uh, all of a sudden, a a woman and I don't know her name sent a fifty-eight page documents to me, and it was all Dad's history, all his. Family history
0: mm.
1: And I was still searching mums out. Then I uh, I run into Mum's brother, his last daughter. he had eight daughters, Willie Wright, from Port Headland. He and uh, I thought, oh well this is great. Now I'm going to find out family history. And uh, so we had a little barbecue up here. Uh, our other house we had, Westbrook Way. Uh, three months after meeting her, I sat with her when she passed away in Royal Perth Hospital and when she passed away I thought, well, I'll never find out who my people are now. But in that time it was enough for different little, different nieces, different nephews to come along and feed me a little bit more information uh, Lisa and I, when I wrote my book, we'd done a trip up to Broome uh, down through to Hall, uh, Derby, Halls Creek and all that and uh, I picked up a little bit more from the old people there and all that and, uh, and then over the uh, we went out to Beagle Bay and stayed the night there. So I, I got little bits of information all the way along And uh, it was enough to sort of build a foundation on. Mm. And since then I've just just nephews and nieces that I didn't think I ever knew. Remember that I grew up until I was turned 15 Mm. thinking there was only eight in our family. Yeah, it's not until you meet a
0: few, eh? That's where all the the lines come through is through the family connections. You
1: find out a little bit and a little bit more. And then, and why that happened that the nieces and nephews came is because when Sissy Clark died, Lisa and me went to a funeral in Port Edland, mm. and there was over a 1,000 people there and nearly all of them were my relations. Yep. So many of them got my address and telephone number and all that and they've been ringing me ever since sort of. Mm. Yeah. And it still happens, hey, eh, when oh. you go to funerals today, they say, oh, this is such and such and this is... Oh, I'm still, on meet, on. I'm still meeting them today, yeah. yeah. And it'll never stop. No. Nah. It'll never stop. So, uh, well, that come, sort of completed my life. And, but I don't think I'd ever reach this stage of uh, knowing me for people mm. uh, without visa. Yeah. Never. Yeah. You both did a lot of work in the community as well. Yeah, we had the Aboriginal Urban Services. Uh, what was that about? Well, prior to that, uh, we had uh, we had time on our hands, and uh, we used to go out and do lawn mowing for uh, low-income families, single parents, and all that. You know, at no cost, mm. and all that. And then uh, Ministry of Justice Mirabuka heard about that, uh, so they approached us in 1990, and. Uh, asked us if we'd subcontract to them uh, and work with the youth going through the courts, uh, going out on supervision orders, you know. Mm. So we accepted and in 91 we started off with, uh, and we had four boys or girls or whatever, four boys, and uh, seven hours a day, five days a week. And we used to do the same thing, go out lawn mowing, yard cleaning, rubbish removal and... No no cost to the people. And if Mm. they wanted to throw money, give us the money, well, that'd go for the boys' cool drink or cigarettes or whatever they wanted to do with it. Through that Aboriginal Urban Service and Kuma Gen program, we thought, Lisa and I thought, that we're healing the boys. Mm. And it was only after that we realised that, hey, those boys were healing us for everything we went through, you know. Mm. And uh, so it was uh, not a one-way street, it was a two-way street. Yeah, They were doing as much for us yeah. as we were doing for them and we're grateful for that, always yeah. have been. And they still come up today, remember yeah. me? <laughs> this had gone back 91. <laughs> <laughs> this is my wife, this is my children and I got a good job down south Fremantle or Fremantle or yeah. somewhere else. yeah.
0: So after, you know, you're finding out your identity, who you are, where you're from, you're a proud Aboriginal man. I am. Yes. I always will be. What did it mean to receive the awards and recognition that you've received as an Aboriginal elder?
1: Well, I'm humble and I'm grateful mm. that I've been acknowledged and accepted in the Noongar Aboriginal family. I can see it yeah. in your eyes, That's and the, a,
0: yeah. little smile on your face when you say that. That says a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nothing
1: worse than being an outcast. Mm. At times, did you think it would have been easier just to retire? Well, we tried to. 20, <laughs> 2010 we retired. Yeah. We gave the Aboriginal Urban Services it, mm. but we didn't tell the community. <laughs> <laughs> and we were busier since twenty ten, right up until Nan passed away. Yeah, than we were when we were in them. <laughs> but it's something you, you can't retire from, do not it? Because no, you it's, it's part of our culture. Yeah, to to look after the young ones coming yeah. through. You know? Yeah, and it's it's not a uh, no. It's an automatic decision of, yeah. What can I do for you? You know. Yeah. If yeah. anyone calls on help, and yeah. it didn't matter who they were, we had Chinese young fellas jumping off the Ministry of Justice vehicles. Yeah. To uh, come with us, you know and and the door we had office here at kandula that was open to everyone mm. no matter who they were yeah. where they come from even though our uh, our uh, focus was on our Nongar aboriginal boys and girls and pe-
0: families yeah. look at looking back over your life you know it's an incredible journey that you've had and what what's happened along the way which really built your character and and the way you think, you know, you carried that chip on your shoulder for so long that you were talking yeah. about, you know.
1: What matters most to you today? Well, it's just the satisfaction of and not only give back something, but I receive double the dose of what I've given out, you know, yeah. back from the youth, the community mm. and everything, yeah.
0: mm. Well, you've been a hard worker, a community activist, a youth
1: worker, an author, a poet and a respected elder. And I've even sat behind the controls of a Cessna's (laughs) planes. And a pilot. (laughs) Yeah, up in Mikathara. How do you want to be remembered? Well, I never ever gave it a thought except when I'm gone, if they keep referring to me as pop, uncle, that'll do me. Mm.
0: And what would be your legacy?
1: Oh, my gosh. The books. The
0: books.
1: Yeah. So our listeners need to go out and buy these books. Yeah, oh, my word. They're good teaching tools and there's something for everyone in it, you Mm. know, and. uh, I was just,
0: when I was flicking through them before we started this interview and the amount of information that's in there, you know, and going into depth as well. How clear it is to read. Yeah.
1: You know, it's, it's, it's explained. I, I think uh, it was that on because, you, you know, Dolores Garland, mm. Stumpy?
0: Yeah.
1: She said, Pop, she said, I can read Mum's book right through good as gold. She said, but your book, you know, it's written like a wadula. <laughs> I can't understand it. <laughs> that was Dolores. You
0: used English words in this. <laughs> Now, look, Pop, thanks for having a yarn with us. Is there anything that you want to add during this interview?
1: Well, what I'm thrilled about is all these years of paying back in my mind what Lisa's done for me and mm. that was by walking a step behind her and encouraging her in every way I could and putting her first, you know. And uh, what I'm really thrilled about is the member for Mirabuka yesterday approached Glenda about bringing it up in Parliament and having a luncheon up there with them yeah. for, in honour of Lisa. Mm. And these two books here, they've already been in Parliament. Janine Freeman spoke about these two books a few mm. years ago. So, so but that, that gives not, me a thrill. Not, white, not Black, Not Wanted yeah. and doolan, doolan the two books. Yeah. And that means Strong Hands in the Nongar Language, mm. Doolan. She had a lot more and stronger hands, and <laughs> <laughs> she did. And you've got one more book to come, one more book to come, and that's a dedication to uh, leisure. Yeah, Doolin was a legend in her own right, mm. and I think it's only um, it's only right that I did this seventh, eighth book just on her alone. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, Pop, thank you so much for your
0: time. It's oh. been a pleasure. Oh, we could sit here all day and night. Well, around. I hope I gave you something positive to talk. Oh, we could talk about it.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: absolutely perfect. Thank
1: you again. Right. Thanking you. Thanking you all, everyone. Now we can celebrate by having a cake. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was Uncle Walter Eats. I'm Phil Wally-Stack and you've been listening to Nick Nalakwangi, a series of conversations with Aboriginal elders living in Borley, Perth. This podcast was produced by Community Arts Network in partnership with the City of Perth and with support from the ABC. You can hear more of these stories by visiting can.org.au or through your favourite podcast service. For more information, check out can.org.au. Until next time, I'm Phil Wally-Stack. What one.